0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to our show and enjoying it, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to Patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. Before we get started here, let me just thank our new patrons for this week. Karen, Stefan, Ginger, John, Lisa, and Cheesecake701, my favorite name so far. Uh, thank you guys all so much for becoming a patron. Um, it really does mean the world to me um, and to my family that you're helping keep this podcast going and helping foot the bill for it. <laughs> anyway, if you want to learn more, patreon.com slash it's five bucks a month. If you think this uh, podcast is worth five bucks a month, then go over there, and uh, thank you so much in advance. Now, before we get to the emails this week, and we don't have many, so this going to be a quick email section, I just wanted to make sure everybody saw during the airing of this last episode that there is a new season of Beyond Oak Island. That is the uh, Oak Island um what do you call them, a Rick and Marty catch-all treasure hunt show that they did last year, Uh, and that's going to start airing in January. So uh, I'll keep you posted if I learn any more than that, but it'll be nice to have a full night of, what would we call it, Oak Island-related material to watch on the History Channel starting again in January. Okay, we only have uh, two emails to get to this week and then a message from Facebook, so let's get right to it. Uh, The first one comes from Justin in Virginia who writes... Hey, Dave, longtime fan of the podcast with one observation from the recent episode. Regarding the ball of stone Gary and Rick found on the surface, quote unquote, am I the only one who finds it extremely odd that something so old could be found above ground and without a single speck of dirt on it? It's safe to assume it has been centuries since anyone was carrying stone shot. Even if it was untouched, it should show signs of weathering at best, but logically it should be in or under the topsoil, right? Perhaps major details of this discovery were edited out, like them cleaning this thing, Uh, but the whole scene struck me as very odd. Would love to hear your take on. Keep up the great work, Justin and Virginia. First of all, Justin, you are certainly not alone in questioning this. I've heard this on many, many uh, a uh, Oak Island-related social media sites. Um, people were wondering how that could possibly be. Uh, I don't think we would have seen them cleaning it up. Be- I don't think they would have cleaned it up beforehand. Usually what they like to do is find it. Hey, Gary says, oh, this could be this, you know, and then they go to the archaeology a trailer now and they clean it up and then it's a big reveal and yada 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 you get what i'm saying um but that's that isn't what happened there they he picked it up like he picked a rock up um i'm not an expert on this i don't really know whether or not um you know it, it could be found just on the surface but what you're asking certainly came to my mind as well as i was watching it i i don't really have an answer i think it is possible the quick research i did on it i think it is possible that it could be found just sitting there um just like rock would be right. Pick a pebble up off the beach, depending on how much weathering is there. And if it rained recently and all that kind of stuff, um, it also could have been churned up by somebody else, um, could have been part of a different, you know, there's a whole lot of possibilities. Um, I guess I, what I'd say is I'm not really sure that it being on the surface is all that unusual. It may be somewhat unusual, but certainly not so much that, um, you know, that I would question the integrity of the shoot, I, I, meaning that I don't think they would have found it, cleaned it, brought it all the way back and said, oh, look, there it is. I mean, I I think stuff like that happens. I know stuff like that happens, right? I know they find things, then put it back and call the camera crew over. You know, I mean, because you just they do work out here for hours and hours on end. I just can't imagine they're shooting every. Little second of it all, you know. So there's going to be stuff found off camera, and then we get these sort of made up scenes. I mean, that's just the cost of doing business. That's just what happens in reality TV, anyway. Thank you, Justin's great question. Let's go to our friend Dave. Wonderful name in Texas. He's written before. He writes, "Hi, Dave. This is uh, Dave from Texas again. I've been watching Oak Island every season, and noticed that I don't remember ever seeing Terry Matheson in any of the meetings in the Oak Island War Room." Do you remember any time Terry has been included in their meetings? If not, I wonder why. Love your podcast. Keep up the good work. And and just as a note, our friend Steve, one of the things we do on Patreon is I try my best when I can to uh, come live onto the Patreon for sort of a discussion during the airing of the show. And I post some thoughts and things like that right as the show is airing. And our friend Steve joined us on there. And in that discussion, he said this, Terry Matheson's an unsung hero on the show. I wonder why they exclude him from the war room generally. So both of you have the same inquiry in the same week. Um, again, this is another question that gets asked a lot. If you follow Oak Island social media pages, which I'll, I'll be honest, I don't really follow them a lot, but I do look at them occasionally. <laughs> uh, I'm not like, uh, I don't, I'm not on them. And I mean, I'm an active member of them, but I don't really participate much. Save my thoughts for this show and for the Patreon. Um, but it is a great question and one that gets asked a lot in those kind of different places. Now, I have a vague recollection of him in one or two War Room scenes. And I have a recollection of many people going, oh, my God, look, it's Terry Matheson in the War Room. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's complete exclusion <laughs> for the sake of exclusion. Um and I honestly have no idea why this would be. And I've been asked this many times. The only thought I have on this is that it is very possible that the work that Terry is doing is all done before the time of the summer where they film all the war room scenes. Okay. Um, meaning it could be a result of the shooting schedule and, and, and especially of editing. If you think what you're seeing is is one day Terry and Charles pull a piece of metal out of a sample from a borehole, and then later that afternoon, uh, Alex and Marty go to Carmen Leg to have it looked at, and then that evening come back, and if you think that's all happening the same day, I, I know that's the way it's edited to look, and that's even what the narrator says from time to time, but that's not what's happening. Um, Just so you know. So it could be Terry's doing all this work inside of, uh, you know, and that's the other thing, right? I mean, they're drilling these boreholes and it doesn't take they're not on the on the island for months drilling these boreholes. So Terry's only there when they're doing that work and that work might only be a couple of weeks stretched across 15 episodes. But it may only be done for a couple of weeks, and then the analysis and all that stuff is done sort of later on and kind of done in order and so that they can have these discussions for the war room. You understand what I'm saying, right? Um, So, again, it could be a lot of things. It could just be scheduling and editing. I don't think they've gone out of their way to exclude Terry Matheson. I don't know why they would do that. Okay. Before we take a break, let me also mention that uh, our friend Eric on Facebook sent this. I wonder if Laird fears more validated by his contemporaries now that the archaeological world has found something to stand up and take note of on the island. Now, Eric Eric sent this a couple of weeks ago, and I just forgot <laughs> to put it on the show. Um, but it really comes in true this week, right? It's a great little uh, mention, a l- great little poll for this week. Um, and, you know... <laughs> This week's episode, we're going to get to it, really makes Laird look as though he's stressed by all the government involvement, um, but I've I've spoken to Laird. Um, I don't believe any of that's true, at least not to the extent that they're leading us to believe, but again, we'll get more on that uh, in the episode recap. Uh, Laird, listen, Laird is an incredibly accomplished guy in his field, especially in Nova Scotia where he's done so many different archaeological work, so much different archaeological work and research. Um, But I can't help thinking, you know, Eric, that maybe you're correct here. Uh, Whenever I ask, here's the thing, right? Whenever I have a conversation with an academic or an expert, especially those from Nova Scotia, and I ask them things about what their peers think of all this Oak Island business, every single one I've ever talked to, and I mean all of them, have all responded with an answer that indicates, yeah, this uh, this is a bit of a challenge. It is kind of looked down upon by a lot of the academic community. Um, not many of their peers really take any of this very seriously. So I'm sure for Laird, uh, you know, this whole thing has that little stressing <laughs> part to it. And maybe, yeah, he's finally feeling that, you know, he's getting, he's getting recognition for doing some work here, especially when you consider what happened in this week's episode, which we're going to get to. Um, I, again, it, that all seems to be changing this year. But more on that in just a second. Now, listen, thank you guys for this week's questions. If you have any questions or comments for next week's show, um, especially about the show that just aired this week, uh, drop me an email, island at gmail.com. All right, it's time to get into this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island called Stone Roadblock. Back to the bad puns, I guess. Uh, the episode begins at the Money Pit, so let's start over there. It's basically a recap scene here to start off the show. Rick Lagina and Craig Tester head over to the um, drilling area to meet with the guys on the drill team. This time it's Charles Barkhouse, Terry Matheson, and the surveyor Steve Gupta. Uh, basically all we see Rick and Craig doing here is um, recapping what happened last week about uh, telling them about this piece of metal that they found last week and that had traces of gold in it. Um, They're about to begin digging. The guys here are about to begin digging a new hole called B4. And there are two really great images that I think many Oak Island fans here will appreciate. I'll try to put them on my Facebook page uh, for us. One is a grid showing the exact positioning uh, of the relationship between this new hole, last week's hole where they found this metal piece, and C1. People are always asking to get sort of a better layout of where things are. Well, here you go. And then they kind of supplement that with a great overhead shot of exactly where this work is being done in relation to the rest of the money pit area. Again, I'll post a couple of screenshots on Facebook if I get a chance. And what you got to really know about this is this is the extreme northern end of the area that's been cleared as where the money pit originally existed. It's a big area. They don't really know exactly where it was, as I'm sure you know by now. But uh, that gives us a real good idea of of where they are, which a lot of people always ask for. Now, before we get to this new borehole, let's talk a little more about that piece of metal found last week. Despite having new equipment on the island to test the chemical makeup of artifacts, Marty, Craig, and Dan Henske take, take this piece of metal that they found last week to Dr. Krista Brousseau. She is the professor of chemistry at St. Mary's University in Halifax, and also is uh, they take it to her... Um, a colleague, Dr. Sean Yang, who uh, research instrument specialist, he's the guy who can operate all this incredible equipment he's in the lab. Uh, we've seen these two many times before, and they are people who uh, really can confirm this presence of gold uh, and maybe even, you know, do a little bit more research into what exactly we're looking at here from this piece of metal found last week, again, in borehole D2. Now, Brousseau says that the iron that makes up part of this is, is in fact old non-manganese iron which means it's pre-1840 so that's interesting um and also let me just say this uh interesting little thing to point out steve on the patreon during the airing of the show said quote they clearly are not airing fines in order the date on the scan is 8 1821 hmm I didn't catch that, Steve. I didn't see that. I should go back and take a look. But uh, if that's true, well, then you really get an idea of what I was saying before about how none of this is shot in order, right? Uh, She points out the pyrite or fool's gold is also present in all this. That's kind of interesting. And then under the microscope, the doctors find this little shiny piece of something. Now, it's point to understand, this is a very microscopic little thing we're seeing here. And it turns out this indeed is gold they do a chemical makeup uh, or kind of rundown. And Brousseau says that it's consistent with something called rose gold because the piece shows like a combination of 65% gold, 26% copper, and then smaller percentages of silver and zinc. Now, rose gold is basically a blend of copper and gold, and it's done to make this nice sort of rosy pinkish color. I'm sure you've all seen this before. It's very old uh, thing to do to gold. And it's also very common. It was called Russian gold for a while because the Russians used quite a bit of it, I think in the early part of the 19th century, but it's been around a whole lot longer than that. And I think they may mention the Russians in the show there and their use of it. Uh, But again, this goes back even much further than that. Now, next comes this very strange scene. And I got to tell you right now, uh, this is going to be the Dave complains about Marty Lagina episode. And I've got two w- pretty sizable complaints about Marty in this episode. I'm very disappointed in him, uh, or maybe in the way he's at least pursued or, or uh, shown to us here. Uh, anyway, Marty's back on the island, and he's meeting now with some other members of the team on this deck that they like to meet in outside the interpretive center with a couple of picnic tables, right? And he's there to report what Dr. Brousseau said. Marty then proceeds to tell us that he, in fact, thinks Dr. Brousseau was wrong, that this piece was not made of rose gold, but instead could be something called tumbaga due to what, quote, unquote, his research tells him about the amounts of each metal found in rose gold. Okay, let's back up a bit before I unload here on Marty for the first time today. and tell you what tumbaga means. Tumbaga is basically a catch-all phrase coined by Spanish conquistadors. This was during their conquest period of the Americas, and it was sort of a catch-all phrase for any of the gold-colored jewelry that they stole from the indigenous peoples, which were all over South and Central and North America, right? Tumbaga was made in places ranging from as far north as northern Mexico all the way down to Chile. It's basically a metal made by combining copper and gold, and those amounts of copper and gold would vary wildly from region to region, usually depending on the availability of gold and the sort of melting and creep manufacturing techniques that were employed depending on where this was, right? I mean, again, we're talking about a huge range and so many different people who did this. Here's the problem with Marty's conclusions. First, Dr. Brousseau did not say the percentages of metal in the artifact means it's rose gold. What she said was exactly, quote, adding a lot of copper to a gold alloy created a rose color. We know it now as rose gold, end quote. Now, do you see the difference? Marty drew conclusions that Brousseau was in fact basing her conclusion on the exact amounts of each metal in the artifact. But that's clearly not what she's doing. What she was doing was telling them why one would combine copper and gold. And we don't refer to that now, right? If somebody does that to make a pink colored gold, we don't refer to that as tumbaga or Russian gold. We refer to it as rose gold, no matter what it is. So she's just sort of framing this in a modern world. That's exactly what I got out of it. For some reason, that's not at all what Marty got out of it. Very weird. But that's not the only reason Marty makes himself look just a little bit ridiculous here. If he really researched these two things, Rose, Gold, and Tombaga, he would have found that neither of these things really have an exact formula of any kind, and he presents it as if they do. These are ancient methods used over centuries, and like I said, across many cultures and many continents. Perhaps by the time the Russians were making their gold, they did have a specific formula they used. I'm not so sure. Maybe we do now. But Dr. Brousseau never specified what kind of rose gold she thought it was. She didn't say anything about who made it or when or anything like that. All she said is that's what we would call it now. So the percentages of what she gave are absolutely meaningless here. But what's more, I mean, let's review a little bit, right? The chemical makeup of a piece of what we would of, of this piece here that sh, that they're looking at is sixty five percent gold, twenty six percent copper, and five percent silver. Marty's quote unquote research tells him that rose gold is seventy five percent gold, twenty two point five percent copper, and two point five percent silver. They really aren't all that different. He calls these two sets of numbers wildly different and they all kind of uh you know nod their heads in agreement. But in terms of old sort of smelting methods, are they really all that different? I mean, <laughs> you, you know, back in the in the 18th century or the 17th century or the 16th century, people aren't measuring the exact amount of gold. They're doing it they're eyeing it up, right? Of the different metals in here. They're not taking it on a scale and getting the exact amount uh just i don't know i'm not so sure they they both produce either one of these numbers will produce a similar looking metal which was the point of the whole process to make the gold look a certain color right the exact numbers are meaningless (laughs) before a certain error right either way It doesn't matter what the percentages are. Again, the percentages are meaningless and really they don't serve to identify what this piece really is, although Marty's trying to extrapolate that. Now let me pass along a little bit of advice to our man Marty here. Something I've learned over years, right? Don't accuse someone who's obviously smarter than you and more versed in the subject at hand, unless you are 100% sure you're right and that expert is wrong. I'm not used to Marty dealing with science and information in such a careless way as he did here. It really was kind of stunning to me to hear him say this. Anyway, okay, despite all that, this is a great time to talk about the Spanish theory. Let's go back to fun stuff. Despite its lack of popularity with the show recently, this was certainly the preferred theory, if you didn't know, of Dan Blankenship and Fred Nolan, although their uh, theories differed in the details. It's also the preferred theory of Oak Island uh, author and researcher Darcy O'Connor. And this, we're connecting this Spanish theory to the possibility that this was tumbaga, which means it was stolen by Spanish conquistadors, right? Now, there are a lot of versions of what we call the Spanish theory, but they basically come down to one of two possibilities, right? Either this is Aztec or mine gold brought and buried here by the Spanish after they stole it from them on their way back to Europe, or it was buried actually by the indigenous people themselves, to hide it from the Spanish. Now, the team leans more towards the Spanish doing the burying, which stems from things that Dan Blankenship found and, of course, things the team found, including that Spanish coin found in the swamp all the way back in season one of the show. Now, O'Connor's theory is a great one, Darcy O'Connor's theory, in his book, The Secret Treasure of Oak Island. And folks, if you haven't read this book, go go get it for, for the holidays and enjoy it. It's a fantastic book, really one of the seminal works in the Oak Island history. Uh, O'Connor points out in his book that somewhere between 200 Spanish ships were lost on their way from the New World to Spain during this era of conquest. As you can imagine, Many of these ships were carrying treasure they plundered from the indigenous peoples, namely the Aztecs or the Mayas or the Incas, all of whom used this Tombaga-style gold. These ships sailed from wherever the gold was acquired to a Spanish stronghold first, like in Havana, and then from there they would sail across the Atlantic back to Europe. Now, the quickest way back to Spain was, and really still is, to follow the Gulf Stream up the coast of North America and then turn northeast towards Europe, somewhere around the mid-Atlantic coast of the U.S., somewhere between like Virginia and usually New Jersey, not much further north than um, than Long Island. But that really depends on the winds and the tides. But as the theory goes here, O'Connor's theory, one such ship filled with gold caught got caught up in a storm. And the storm pushed them north with the heavy winds and everything all the way up towards Nova Scotia this is a very plausible thing to happen and in the process the ship sustained a lot of damage again something that happened a lot back then pushed way off course by a storm and damaged in the process the crew decides they can't continue to Europe with a damaged ship especially a damaged ship that's also heavy with gold they can't really continue to Europe without risking their own lives and risking the gold. So they find a quiet little island and decide to bury their treasure, rather than leave behind a, like a security detail or something to guard it, which would likely attract attention and would be overrun anyway by passing enemy ships or even by the local peoples. So with the help of a mining engineer that they happen to have on board, which also was very common because many of these mining engineers went back and forth to America with the conquistadors to help them mine the gold when they found the source of gold that the local people were using. So with the help of this mining engineer that they happen to have on board, (laughs) they uh, remove the gold, make some repairs. They build an elaborate underground vault that they hope no one will ever find. And then they get back on the ship, leave the gold behind and head for Spain with the idea of bringing back a new ship to retrieve the gold at a later date. The only problem is the ship was indeed too damaged anyway, got caught maybe up in another storm or something like that and sinks, killing everyone on board. Thus, no one ever hears of this now buried treasure. Now, honestly, if you're a believer in the treasure on Oak Island, this is as good a theory as any out there as to how it could have wound up there. Either way, as the meeting comes to an end, uh, despite Marty's clearly wrong conclusions here, the team concludes that this is going to, and I can't really disagree at all here, that this D2 hole is a great area to drop down one of these gigantic 10-foot cans that they're going to obviously do sometime during the... uh, the remainder of the season so that they can get a better look around this specific area. That seems to make a lot of sense. They've been looking for data as to where to put one of these cans. This seems to be a good piece of data. Later, the team digs some more wood found out of this new hole that they're digging. I think, what was it called again? B4. Um, And right at that 90 foot level, exactly where they've been finding it. Uh, All the more reason to start digging and start dropping one of those big cans. Okay, now, despite all this talk of Aztec and rose gold and and all in the money pit and all the the Spanish conquistadors and all that, the swamp actually provided the most drama in today's episode. So let's conclude the podcast over there. The team is following this stone road, which we're now calling a stone wharf. And again, I just want to mention something. Terry DeVoe's theory that um, this road possibly extends offshore was not at all, and is not in my mind, at all astounding, as the narrator likes to say. I mean, the fact that this would extend beyond, especially in the direction it was heading, beyond what is now the beach offshore makes all the sense in the world when you consider the rise in ocean levels. Just want to point that out for you as you continue to watch this. Gary is detecting, is metal detecting, while working alongside archaeologist Mirian Amaro. Um, and they find a piece of black glass, and then find even more and even more. According to Laird Niven, it looks to him like an old English wine bottle that he says comes from about the 1770s, 1780s. During this kind of work over here, Rick comes by and he points out all these cobblestones in the same area and starts to wonder if it might be a separate road leading in a different direction instead of straight, like kind of almost straight north as the other one did and this one, more northeast, right? Later they uncover more of this road and then they bring in surveyor Steve Guptel to start plotting it and um, theorize. He kind of asks him to sort of theorize or project where this road might lead. And I guess what he's trying to do is even though he's got a little bit, they can kind of get a direction. Well, where does that direction go if it goes in a straight line, right? <laughs> and and they find out, not surprisingly, but really, also, <laughs> kind of incredibly, they find out that it would lead directly to this C1 section of the money pit. I mean, really coming within feet of this C1 section. if this turns out to be true, if they are ever able to really look at this stone road closely uh, and th- and it goes right to this C1 area, boy, man, if that's a coincidence, that's one heck of a coincidence in my mind. I think that's amazing. Anyway. In another scene at the eastern corner of the swamp, we see Laird and Miriam Amaro joined by archaeologist Liz Michaels. Now, just before um, we see this scene, Steve on the Patreon also said to me something of the effect of uh, the absence of Dr. Aaron Taylor and Dr. Liz Michaels is interesting telling. Uh, That was a quote from Steve. Well, here is Liz. Now, I'll just mention this, Steve, since you brought this up. Um, Aaron Taylor is still missing. And what's weird is um, he's missing without a trace, right? There's not a mention of him at all so far. I'm not saying this means anything. I don't really know. But it's weird that he hasn't even been talked about, hasn't even been mentioned. I mean, this is a guy who spent all last year knee-deep in muck in the swamp, and we're not even saying why he's not here anymore. Who, who, Who knows? If we never see him, it could mean a lot of different things. But you know what? Honestly, all of those things would just be speculation on my part. So I'm just going to wait until I have some better information. Anyway, the archaeologists, while looking over here, find a piece of pottery and then a couple of more, which they immediately, Laird immediately identifies as Mi'kmaq in origin. And the Mi'kmaq are the local First Nations people of that area of Nova Scotia. And my first thought was, uh-oh, Indy, we got problems. Later, Laird sits down with the guys and tells them that the CCH, which is the Nova Scotia Department of Communities, Culture, and Heritage, uh, had already come to the island, which we did not see, and inspected what they had found so far there, where this piece of Mi'kmaq pottery was. The CCH said they want something called the Acadia First Nation, which from what I can understand is sort of the governing body of the local Mi'kmaq kind of reservations and people, right? It's important to keep in mind, my American friends, this is Canada, so the laws are very different here. We'll get to that in a second. Now, what Laird wants to do, or what Laird says the CCH wants to do, is allow this Acadia First Nations the chance to come and look at this. So they've asked them to pause the work and allow the First Nations to do that. Now, later in another war room meeting, Laird reports that the CCH and the Acadia First Nations have asked the team essentially to stop all work in this area until they can get a better look. Now, what follows is easily one of the most disappointing and really deeply very irritating and also let me say one of the most poorly edited scenes that I've ever seen on this show in its nine years of existence. I'm going to try my best not to completely unload on Marty Lagina here, but I'm going to tell you now, folks, it's not going to be easy. (laughs) Okay, let's take this step by step. Laird tells the team the pottery indicates the Mi'kmaq, quote, were there for some period of time, unquote, meaning the presence of such artifacts might tell us that the Mi'kmaq might have lived there or had some type of community there on the island, not just passing through and, you know, not just tying up a fishing boat or something. You know what I mean? Like, this could have been a spot where they lived. Laird then says that the government has asked the team to, quote, stop work at the area where we are finding the artifacts, end quote. Weirdly, this is then followed by Steve Guptill showing a map of the entire area, uh, the entire island, actually, in an attempt to explain what the team can and can't do on their own. So there's green zones and red zones, right, that they can and can't work with. The problem is, folks, and this is never mentioned, this is absolutely nothing new. The long and short of it all is this. Years ago, the Nova Scotia government basically granted the Laginas the ability to do almost anything they wanted with the money pit in Smith's Cove area. But not beyond that. That's because the money Pitt and Smith's Cove been so torn up there's really any kind of archaeological find would be tainted to say the least right but beyond those areas they couldn't just dig giant holes right now beyond that area that Steve had in green basically what it means is these red areas they need to get some kind of permission from the government and they're I think they're all a little different but they're but some kind of permission This has been the case for years, but for reasons totally passing understanding, the show goes out of its way to make it sound like the CCH and Acadia First Nations just came in and said, "Up, can't do anything at all now beyond the green zone. But it's not the CCH that says this. It's not the First Nations that say this. It's the provincial government that said this when they passed something in 2011 called the Oak Island Treasure Act. And wait. There's another problem here. The problem is none of this is what Laird said at all. He said nothing about being restricted from doing anything outside of the money pit. What he did say is they asked him to stop digging in, quote, the area where we're finding the artifacts, which is certainly not all of those red parts that we see Steve bring up on his little map. Now, I'll try to put a screenshot of this up too, if I remember, so you can see it again. But uh, it all begs the question, right, as they're doing this, why are they making this all sound worse than it actually is? Why are they making the CCH and Acadia First Nations look out to be the enemy, to be some sort of bad guys, when all they're asking for is a pause in the work in this little area to get a closer look at this little corner of the swamp in accordance with a law that's been in place for well over a decade. Now, the conclusions they draw after a ridiculous amount of bitching and moaning here, and an editing hatchet job, clearly done for reasons beyond understanding, to make Laird Niven look like some sort of guilty party. I don't know why in God's name this, what that was all about. I don't know why they did that. They decide they're going to, after all this, they decide they're going to abandon everything all work outside the green zone. Really? You're just going to take your ball and go home, Marty? I mean, did you all really and honestly decide to abandon everything besides drilling in the money pit because the Mi'kmaq want to get a look at perhaps a place where their ancestors lived, maybe perhaps gain something of a new understanding of their cultural history before you just let Billy Gerhardt go at it with an excavator? I mean, you got to be kidding me if that's what you're doing here. And again, Marty looks ridiculous, bitching endlessly about the First Nations wanting them to hold off a bit here, complaining about how he is, quote unquote, increasingly frustrated and saying things like, quote, we are running the risk of losing our property by performing properly, end quote. And then the one that really churned my stomach when he belly ached, quote, the more we cooperate and the more we dig, the more of our island we lose. Even Billy Gerhardt pissed me off when he whined about how he can dig holes anywhere else on the island and no one would stop him from doing it. Well, Billy, that might be true. And you may think that's a very clever little response, but you're all acting like you're just digging holes in some random place and pulling out dirt. Billy, don't you get it? You actually found something here. It wasn't just dirt. If it was, this wouldn't be happening. Don't you understand this? The pottery was unearthed for crying out loud. This is exactly why the government enacted these laws years ago. Let me just remind everyone in the quote-unquote fellowship, this is exactly why you couldn't bulldoze the Samuel Ball property or drain the swamp without someone's permission. Basically, yes, folks, You just can't bulldoze anything you see, despite what Marty Lagina's bellyaching here about the process the government put in place ages ago might be. But I think what bugs me even more is what seems like Marty's total lack of understanding, that he is the stranger here. This is not his country. Canada has different relationships and a different history with its First Nations people than we do here in the United States. Now, I'm no expert, but I do read the paper And during this past summer, protests and demonstrations took place all over Canada after news of finding hundreds, maybe even thousands of unmarked graves of indigenous children found at something called residential schools. I'm not gonna go through a political or history lesson here for you guys. You can do that all on your own and read about this. But needless to say, Canada's indigenous people have been front of mind over the last year or so throughout the country. But even with all that in mind, Marty wants to spend his time moaning away about how the local First Nations people want to get a look at a possible site of historical significance for them before he pounds away at it with his heavy equipment. Now, for all I know, this might turn out to be nothing, but can we at least respect the Mi'kmaq's desire to decide that for themselves? Because one thing I can be absolutely sure of, the worst people to leave in charge of such a thing, of looking at such a thing, are American treasure hunters who never heard the word Mi'kmaq before they started digging for the Ark of the Covenant years ago. Oh yes, this entire scene still gets me aggravated and still makes my blood boil. has me very disappointed. Honestly, a little disheartened too. And I know many fans of the show will be mad at me for saying all of this and um, will disagree with my take. And feel free to send them to me, digginogeisland at gmail.com and I'll certainly read them aloud here. And for that... If you are mad by this, I'm very sorry, but Marty and Prometheus' attempt to make Laird Niven and the Acadie First Nations out to be some sort of enemies, hell-bent on stopping them from their noble work of finding their treasure, is just wrong, dishonest, and totally misguided. I'm sorry, Marty, but Canada places the history of their indigenous people above your desire to finish your treasure hunt quickly and make an exciting television show. And honestly, in this regard, I totally agree with Canada here. Now, having said all of that, I will mention one more time, and I think it's important to do this, that, and maybe I'm rescuing a sinking ship here and rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic, but Prometheus could be more to blame here than Marty and the team because it looked so purposely edited To make this all look like Laird was the bad guy or guilty of something and stressed out and being yelled at from everybody, you know, this could have all been easily edited to make it look worse than it is. Now, Marty said the things he said. That is certainly true. But we can always assume that things can be taken out of context. It was all chopped up. And like I said, the editors and the producers really looked to me like they had an agenda here. Let's hope that's true. And let's hope these guys are not really as annoyed and as, uh, as upset as they appear to be with local First Nations wanting to take a look at what might be a historic site for them. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. I'm sure I'm going to get negative reviews for this. Please, please, please don't put anything more than a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, please. Anyway, shameless plug time. I produce another show. It's called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host Chris Post sit down over a drink or two. We talk about pubs and politics. We talk a lot about music recently. We've done some paranormal discussions. We're basically just two friends who've been observing the world for years, and we sit down with a couple of drinks and chat about it. Give it a listen. You can find sit downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And also, I like to remind you guys I'm back in the air as a DJ. I have Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 5 p.m. on WDVRFM in New Jersey, uh, western New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. From 2 to 4, I host a show called The Bourbon Street Bistro, plays the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., I do a show called Island Vibes, where we play the music uh, with a little bit of a tropical feel to it, right? You can listen either, if you're local, you can listen on 89.7 FM, or you can also just go to wdvrfm.org and listen there. It's on the TuneIn app, or you can just apparently tell Alexa to turn on WDVR. Again, Wednesdays, 2 to 5 p.m. And don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth $5 a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash island to learn more. And if you're enjoying the Diggin Oak Island podcast, please Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your, show. Get, or get your shows. And if you're not enjoying it, don't leave anything. Five-star reviews only, please. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it uh, take, for taking the time to do that uh, and for the kind words. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at digandolkisland at gmail.com. And keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media. I'm going to answer it here on the podcast unless you tell me otherwise. So just make a note of that for me. Don't forget, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.